<clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to K2. Glad you're here. My name is Mike Rutledge. I am uh, the director of arts here, and I'm one of the teachers at uh, K2. I love that song, Hope Was Born. Uh, it's just uh, obviously referring to the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, and we're, we're, as we're heading towards the end of the year and into Christmas 2015, anyone out there that says, I'm good, I don't need any hope? Anyone? Probably not, right? We're all looking for something to hope in. And if you were here, we're, our series is called Hope. And if you were here last week, you heard Dave Nelson uh, talk uh, about how hope implies waiting. And the very fact, the definition of the word hope uh, lets us understand that there's something that we don't yet have. Because as soon as you have it, you don't need to hope for it anymore. And uh, Christmas is just such a time of heightened awarenesses and uh, you know, it's a, it's a time to remember and commemorate uh, exactly, exactly what our opening song said, that hope was born. And what I love about that is that there was actually a human embodiment of hope. Jesus Christ came as the human embodiment of hope. And it says that it was born, which is cool because it's not that Hope was completed or finished or through or over, but it was born. It was introduced into our lives. We have something to hope for. And, uh, you know, there's a band, uh, obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously. To me, it's obvious. I love music. And uh, there's a band called Dashboard Confessional. They wrote a song a few years back called Vindicated. And the opening line is this. The opening lines, hope dangles on a string like a slow spinning redemption, winding in and winding out. The shine of it has caught my eye and roped me in, so mesmerizing, so hypnotizing, I'm captivated. See, hope is what keeps us going when things get tough, right? We tell ourselves, if we could just get through this moment, because I can see the thing I'm going to get to. You know, it, we find something to keep our eyes on, kind of the light at the end of the tunnel, and as long as we have that light, we can keep moving forward. You know, there was a school system in a large city that had a program to help uh, keep children up with their uh, schoolwork during stays in the city's hospital. And uh, one day, a teacher who was assigned to the program received a, a routine phone call asking her to visit a particular child. And so she took the child's name and the room number and uh, headed off uh, to the hospital. But first, she stopped to talk to the teacher and just understand a little bit about the student. And she said, well... We're studying nouns and adverbs, and uh, so if you could, you know, I'd be really grateful if you could help him understand what those are so he doesn't fall too far behind. And she went to the hospital and that afternoon, and when she arrived, no one had told her that the boy she was visiting had been severely burned and was in extreme pain. And so she was kind of put off guard a little bit, and she was... Uh, sort of upset when she saw him, and so she kind of muddled her way through her time with him, helping him understand about nouns and adverbs, and she left feeling really discouraged and like, man, I did a terrible job. That was pointless. Nonetheless, she went back the next day to meet with the boy and continue teaching him, and as she walked in, a nurse met her and uh, said to her, what did you do to that boy yesterday? And immediately she felt like she needed to start making apologies. And I'm sorry, I know I did a terrible. And the, and the nurse said, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't think you understand. We've been really worried about that boy. 
But ever since yesterday, his whole attitude changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's as though he decided to live. And two weeks later, the boy said that he had, he just told everyone, well, I had completely given up on living. I'd given up hope until the teacher arrived. And everything changed when he came to a simple realization that he expressed this way. He said, I figured they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy now, would they? It's a beautiful description of this hope that dangles on a string that keeps us moving forward in spite of hardships. When we don't have what we want, we can muscle through when there's light at the end of the tunnel. Let me just ask you guys, honestly, in this season, in this holiday season, first, I love Christmas with all my heart. It's just an amazing time of the year, but not everyone is in that same place. Some of us deal with heartache and loss and terrible things, and actually, Christmas can exacerbate the problems that we have or the struggles or the hopelessness that's there. And I want to ask you, this Christmas, what are you hoping for? I don't mean you hope that there's chips at home when you get there from, you know, church there. I mean, what are you actually hoping for? What are you putting your hope in? Maybe I could ask it this way. Have you lost hope in something that you need someone to come back and help you find the hope dangling on a string for you? Today, I want to look at what it means to put our hope in God. And the good news, I like to say, is that the Bible has tons to say about hope. We find this phrase that just repeated throughout the whole scripture, and it says, my hope is in the Lord, my hope is in the Lord. And it seems that God intends for us to fight our fears with hope. That's the solution. The two are inextricably tied together, loss of hope and fear. And the way we fight fear is through hope. And fear is pretty simple, you know, we all know what it is, but Webster says fear is a feeling of anxiety concerning the outcome of something or the likelihood of something unwelcome happening. So we don't have something, and that produces fear, and that fear creates hopelessness. And the way to conquer the fear is through putting our hope back into something. You know, in, throughout the, the Bible, 107 times, at least in the one version of the Bible, 107 times the phrase, fear not, do not fear, or don't be afraid, happens. You know what's cool? That almost 150 times the word hope is used. And I think that we can see this exchange of fear for hope very clearly in the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I, I always, t- I, I just say this, I, I'm going to tell you that when you want to understand what God's word is teaching, one of the best things you can do for yourself is understand the context in which it happened. What was happening in the environment? This is really interesting because what was happening at that time was that the Jews were, li- they had hope for a Messiah. They had been promised a Messiah, but they were living in fear And the uh, political, cultural uh, environment was quite precarious. Uh, It was an agrarian culture where 10% of the people oppressively ruled over the 90%. 
And uh, they, they, were, they were actually governed, the region was governed by uh, the Roman rule and an oppressive leader, and the guy's name was Caesar Augustus. And here's what happened. He issued a decree that the whole world would be counted a census, and that sent people back to their original hometowns so they could be accounted for. And his reasoning in doing this was in order to more accurately tax the people because he wanted to take the revenue from the taxes and fortify more robustly his military. And here's the reason, here, here's what's really interesting. This is where the, the Christmas narrative becomes so alive when you understand this. See, the people of Rome referred to Caesar Augustus as the son of God. He was quite popular. He was the son of God, who was the great savior of the world, they called him, who would bring peace to Rome. Sound familiar? And we see this exchange so clearly in at least these three. I want to share with you really quickly three exchanges of fear for hope that happen through an angelic presentation or an encounter with humans. The first one we see is Jesus, the mother of Mary. And the angel explains to Mary, you're going to give birth here, and that birth is the Son of God. Again, the context, this joker Caesar, he's not the Son of God. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. Look at this. In uh, Luke chapter 1, it says this. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled by his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. Fear replaced by put your hope in God. That's how you'll remove the fear. Then we see also Joseph, the fiancé of Mary, the soon-to-be earthly father of Jesus, is visited by an angel. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, as he continued, or he considered this, excuse me, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son and You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, his hope was in God. His hope didn't lie in the perception of those around him. And his hope didn't lie in his status, because I'm sure there was a whole bunch of junk. And we know this from reading the scripture. He had to deal with a whole bunch of junk that would surround him, continuing not to put Mary away. But he was going to follow through because what the angel told him, his hope was in God, not in his human interactions. And even more strikingly in the, with the background of Caesar Augustus is the encounter that the uh, shepherds have with the angels. Look at this in Luke chapter 2. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will, be, that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. He directly addresses the very things that Caesar Augustus was being hailed as. The savior of the world, the son of God, 
and the one who would provide peace. And the angel says, let me make something really clear to you, shepherds. He's not it, but the one that's going to be born is. This baby will be the son of God and the savior of the world. God's antidote to fear was to put hope in God. So today, what I want to help us understand is how do we know what we've put our hope in? How can we truly put our hope in God? And I believe that there are four key indicators of where your hope lies, and we find them within the context of the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And so if you're a note taker, the first thing you want to write down is this. Hope is what you will kill for. You want to know what you hope in? Whatever you're going to kill for, that's what you hope in. See, and I'm talking figuratively, of course. You know, we do this all the time, right? I can kill a bag of chips like that, man. I love potato chips. I can... But I'm actually, so I'm joking, but here's the thing. See, in order, if I want to lose weight, what do I have to do? I have to kill my desire to eat that bag of chips. I got to kill my desire for junk food. If I want to get in shape, I got to kill my laziness and lethargy. I got to get to the gym so I can get those yoga pants on, right? <laughs> Picture that. Just take a minute. Close your eyes. Okay, service has just come to a screeching halt, right? But on a serious and very seriously, see, we have to kill desires, attitudes, negative thoughts, wrong beliefs, and behaviors that fight against us being able to accomplish or achieve and realize the things we've put hope in. On a daily basis, we do this. If you hope in something, you have to kill something else to make that hope come to life. But I'm not only talking figure, uh, figuratively, I'm talking literally. I'm talking about Herod. You see, I actually even see this here. People kill every day. And why do they kill? They kill because someone is standing in the way of something they hope for. Lives are taken because someone is going to prevent someone else from realizing the hope that they have, whatever that is. But Herod also... In this story, we can see clearly he literally was willing to kill because of what he had placed his hope in. Look at this. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now, okay, I know you guys all have these nativity scenes in your house, right? And it's set up and they're beautiful and you actually put the straw on the bottom and it's cool and the little manger and Jesus and Joseph and the camel and the Magi. Well, a little tip, the Magi weren't there, okay? The Magi came probably one to two years later. And they had traveled from the Orient and what happened is, Herod sells him this line, hey, you go find out where Jesus is, and then I can come. I can give him gifts just like you, and I can worship him just like you are. But the reality is, he was frightened that he was going to lose something, and he was really master planning so that he could off Jesus and, can, and, and keep his role as the leader. And it's, it's no wonder that he was kind of amped up about this, because, see, he, Herod was actually not the rightful king. He wasn't from the line of David. He wasn't born from the line of Jacob. He was from Esau. 
And that made the Jews actually hate him, even though he was actually not a bad king. But the Jews didn't like that. And so when the king of the Jews was born, what does that do? He's replaceable. And that produces what? Fear. And his fear produces what? An action to retain his leadership by killing what he hoped for, his rightful, in his mind, leadership of the Jews. See, Herod was willing to kill for what he hoped in. What he hoped in was earthly. See, anxiety over the outcome of something or the likelihood of something unwelcome happening, that's fear. That's what Herod had, and he was willing to kill for it. And when you fear the most, what you do to deal with that fear and what you will kill to conquer that fear is what you're putting your hope in, whether literal or figurative. Hope is what you'll kill for. Hope is also, though, what you live for. Eugene Land was a self-made millionaire who changed the lives of a whole fifth-grade class. He, uh, in East Harlem, he was, he was asked to come and uh, talk to 59, I think it was 59 uh, fifth-graders, or sixth-graders, excuse me, and uh, he's trying to figure out how he could inspire these uh, students and uh, who statistically, in, in East Harlem, these students, statistically, most of them would drop out of school before graduating. And so he prepared his speech, and he showed up ready to really motivate these kids, and he realized he was struggling not only with how to motivate them, but how to actually get the kids to look at him in the eye. And so he decided he was going to put his prepared script away, and he just talked from his heart, and he said something really simple. It was this. Stay in school, and I'll help pay the college tuition for every one of you. And at that moment, the lives of those students was changed. For the first time, they had hope. And one student said it this way, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. Nearly 90% of that class, 53 out of 59 students, went on to graduate. See, they finally had something to live for, something to hope in, hope dangling on a string and light at the end of the tunnel. We see it also in the narrative with the shepherds. These shepherds found reason to live. Again, they're living under the suppressive rule of the Son of God, as he called himself, the Savior of the world, the one who would bring peace through force and might. But when they encountered the angel who told them about the real Son of God, the Savior of the world, they found their reason to live. Look at this, Luke chapter 2, picking up in verse 9, the second half, it says, They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Do not be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Caesar Augustus did not bring great joy to all people. He brought fear. Great news. Joy. And then he says, The Savior, which actually means deliverer. Yes, the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one. The Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Notice he didn't say one of the, he said the one, the anointed one was born today. This joker Caesar, it's not him. 
Go meet the one. And what they did, they hurried off. Luke 2, 16, it says, They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And it goes on to tell us that all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. See, the very second they realized that the true Messiah was here, they found purpose in living, and they didn't wait. They didn't sit around on their hands doing nothing. They headed to, they head into the city to find the anointed one, and their life had purpose. They had something to live for. We see it, too, in the wise men. Again, now you understand, they traveled for probably about two years, up to two years, with the sole goal of finding the Savior of the world, worshiping him and giving him gifts. Look at this. Uh, again, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Mag uh, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. See, they had singular purpose. They traveled from the Orient, and they even outwitted the king, which meant they tried to trick the king because they knew what their true hope was. Their hope wasn't in the king. Their hope was in this boy being who the angels claimed and who, who, who God was sending as our hope. The question for us is this. What gets you out of bed in the morning? I hope it's more than work. I work at a church and my job's not even that great, right? With hassles and all that kind of stuff. I deal with you people all the time. Joking, somewhat joking. Okay, I'm not joking. I mean, no. Anyway, in a real sense, what is that thing that wakes you up every day? What are you living for? Are you living for Jesus? And the truth of the matter is, in my life, in your life, in many areas, that Jesus is something that I'm hoping actually helps me achieve the thing I'm really living for, as opposed to just strictly living for Jesus. What you need to ask yourself is, what are you willing to live for? What's really driving you? Because that is what you're putting your hope in. Hope is also, though, what you will die for. That's the third thing. The anonymous quote says, life isn't worth living unless you have something worth dying for. Soldiers are right, you know. My son comes home. He's just finishing up basic here, and he comes home Friday. I'm very excited to see him. Soldiers give up their lives because they believe that this country is worth living for. And I want to look at an unlikely person in this scenario. You actually don't see her at the birth of Jesus, but you find her in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She lived during the time of the leadership of, of uh, Joshua in the Old Testament. And her name is Rahab. Rahab was what they would call a woman of ill repute. She was a prostitute. And she finds her way into the genealogy of Jesus. Look at this in Joshua chapter 2. It says this. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We were all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. 
For we've heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Let me just explain something here. So Rahab lived in Jericho, which was a fortified city. Remember, had the walls around it, big walls. And the people of Israel were coming. That was the promised land that they were going to take back. And they had crossed the Red Sea. And the, the reputation of the God that led Israel preceded them. And the people of Jericho had heard it and were terrified because of all the conquests. And bear in mind, they, yeah, they went through the Red Sea, but they still had to cross the Jordan River at flood time. The whole group of people, they had, they, were, they had some challenges in front of them before they could get to Jericho. But Rahab, based on what she knew about the God of Israel, she said, I'm putting my hope in that guy. I'm hitching my hopes and dreams to that God, not these walls. And what happened, she goes, it says she goes up on the roof to talk to them because she had hidden them. And she's like, I'll risk it here. I'm willing to die for this because I actually believe that's the God, not this stuff. And so she goes up to talk to them and she says some amazing stuff. She said, the Lord your God is the supreme ruler of the heavens and the earth. And she said, swear by the Lord, the one I believe in, that you'll be good to me. Rahab would rather die protecting the Israelites than risk living in Jericho because her hope was in God. And if you want to know what you've put your hope in, ask yourself, what are you willing to die for? Again, figuratively and literally. And the final thing is this. That hope is not only what you'll kill for, not what you live for, not only what you'll die for, but also hope is what you do. So there's a progression of hope, and the progression of hope goes like this. You hope for something you, that produces faith, and that faith produces action in your life. You know what I mean? Like, so if you're hoping for a job that requires you to have a certain education, and uh, you never get that education, and you never apply... Are you going to get the job? No. So you've actually just demonstrated that you don't really hope in that. You know, you want to date. And hey, here's an interesting one. You want, you, the, oh, man, that, she's going to be my wife one day. But I'm dating this girl right here. Yeah, see, this happens all the time. We hope for one thing, but our actions and our behaviors demonstrate that our hope is actually in something other than we proclaim it to be. So it goes like this, hope, we hope for something. We have confident, anticipated expectation. Look at this, Psalm 33. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us. Lord, our hope is in you alone. What they're saying here is it does not matter what's going down in my life. The circumstances are just the circumstances. See, because God's in control, and my hope is in you, not in my circumstances. 
You ever find yourself stressed out about stuff, circumstances? Immediately you jump into action to try and solve them in ways that are not godly? Guess what you're demonstrating? God's not capable. Can't put my hope in you because you can't come through like me, God. See, but when we hope in something, the next thing that happens is we have faith. Faith is produced. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. So I hope that God is a savior. And I believe, I'm hoping for a savior and I believe, I put my faith in the fact that it's you, Jesus. You are the savior. Then the next thing that happens is once I've put my faith in that, it produces action in my life. See, many of us, on many things in our life, are hoping in God, but behaving outside of, what, of how God calls us to live. And you just need to know that if you're putting your hope in God and doing things that run against what his teachings tell us, you're going to be sorely disappointed. We hope in God, but we're still not obeying him. We're still trying to manage situations. We won't relinquish the control. And I want to look at a really interesting passage. This happens after, obviously, the birth of Christ, but 12 guys were radically changed as a result of Jesus Christ's birth, and it was the disciples. Their lives changed drastically. And I'm going to read this passage in John chapter 6, but before I read this, I want you to understand what had just happened. So right before this passage, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 people. Remember that? Breaks the loaves and fish feeds 5,000 people. Then he walks on water. And then he makes some statements that are a little bit tough to swallow. And what happens, he starts, he, he stops just doing stuff that everyone's admiring. You know, the circus sideshow, look, he's walking on water, water and wine, cool. Oh, Jesus is awesome. And he didn't just have 12 disciples. He had hundreds of people that were following him. But he had 12 devote disciples. And now he says, hey, listen, here's the deal. If you want to follow me, let me tell you, let me tell you how we roll. Because you actually have to do some stuff here. I actually have some expectations of you. Picking up in chapter 6 of John, it says, At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you going to leave? Simon Peter replied with his beautiful response, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. See, they were hoping for a Savior, and they put their faith in the fact that Jesus was that Savior as had been promised. And then they said, I will continue to follow you even when what I'm hoping for seems difficult and unclear. I'm going to continue to do what you asked me to do. See, the mark of what you hope for is demonstrated by what you do. As Alexander the Great was uh, setting out on, con- on his uh, conquest of Asia, he inquired into the finances of his, of, uh, his followers, 
and uh, to ensure that they wouldn't be uh, troubled or burdened with uh, uh, the welfare of their dependents during his absence, he, he uh, distributed crown estates and, and uh, revenues from, the, um, you know, from, the, uh, from his wealth. And um, when he disposed almost all uh, of the royal resources, his friend, General Perdiccas, asked Alexandra, what have you reserved for yourself? Hope, answered the king. In that case, said Perdiccas, we who share in your labors will also share or take part in your hopes. Then he refused the estate allotted to him and several other the king's friends did the same. See, what he said is, if, if you believe that you don't need to take stuff with you, I'm with you. My actions are gonna demonstrate I believe in you. I don't need the stuff either. See, and for many of us, I just want to tell you, we're holding on to stuff from our past, afraid to let go of the stuff that will radically, thoroughly make us the, depend the dependency on Jesus that we need. And we put our hope in him as a secondary, not a primary. See, what we need to understand, I think, is though it should be the norm for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we are fully devoted 100% to pursuing Jesus and fully hoping in him and him alone, that should be the norm for anyone. But we actually view that as radical. See, but when you view it as radical and when you don't fully devote your life to following him, putting your hope in him and pursuing him, you actually don't hope in him. You hope in whatever you've replaced him with. The question is this, who is God to you? You know, so many names for God, the most high, the shepherd, the master, the healer, the provider, the Lord that is here with us. Who is God to you? Is he your most high, all-sufficient one, the master, the Lord of peace, the Lord who will provide? Is he your father? We need to be very careful not even to put our hope into what we want him to be or, or do and understand that our hope lies solely in who he is. Because if he's in charge and I'm not, and he's all the things he claimed to be, I'm good. And so are you. So for us this morning, we just need to figure out what are those areas that I'm willing to kill something else for? What are those areas that I live for rather than God? Is it a relationship? Is it finances? What are you hoping for this Christmas? What are you willing to kill? Are you willing to ki kill your pride so you can forgive someone? See, and your hope can't be in someone else doing something, and it can only be in God, and your actions can only demonstrate what you believe should happen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we... Uh, 
We're ever indebted to you for your gift to us. You gave your life for ours. You were willing to die for us because you put your hope in our belief in you that we could receive the restored, renewed life that you created us to live in. Let's pray this morning and in this Christmas season that as we get close to the time of family and celebrating and gift exchanges, that we would not lose the fact that our hope needs to be in you, that our joy and our peace and our purpose comes from knowing you and knowing you alone. Thank you for loving us. Convict us in the areas where we need to become aware of something that we're sacrificing you for. We ask this in your name. Amen.